Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hope you had a chance to check out our brand new newsletter that we launched, Dear Asian Americans newsletter. You can sign up for it at bit.ly, that's B-Y-T dot L-Y slash D-A-A newsletter. We also have a brand new logo and a brand new design. Both of these projects were spearheaded by our two amazing interns, Ian Lee and Tammy Sassone over the summer. You can check out the logo on our social media. And if you want a little bit of swag to go with that, you can go to bit.ly slash D-A-A shop. And so they're both .bit.ly links, D-A-A newsletter, designer for the newsletter, and DAA shop to get a little bit of the swag. Today here on episode 163, I am so excited to speak to my friend Annie Bank, who is a speaker. She develops apps. She speaks. She is a, a mother and a grandmother. And she developed this really cool app called Mong Phrases, where she uses the app to teach her community and other folks interested in learning the language and to help preserve it. And so I think it's wonderful. Big thanks to our friends at Apple for bringing us together. And we learn about her life as she navigated life in the Midwest as a refugee and how she is using her skills and her gifts and her privilege to be able to share the love of her language and the beauty of her language with the rest of us. Big thanks to Annie for sharing her story with us. And without further ado, here's Annie Vang. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dears and Americans. Hope you are doing well and staying healthy. Um, Got a special, special guest today, and before we introduce Annie, I uh, want to give a big shout out to our friends at Apple, uh, through uh, whom uh, we met Annie, uh, where they were showcasing a, a wonderful panel of Asian American app creators and how folks are using technology to share our culture, preserve our language, and to build community. And so uh, today we have with us Annie Vang, or I guess we'll learn how it is properly pronounced, as many of our names uh, are not pronounced the way it's supposed to be. Um, we we're just talking about that before we started. Uh, she is the founder and creator of an app called Mong Phrases, through which she hopes to help teach and to preserve and to keep the legacy of her language alive. We'll learn all about her background. She is a, a technologist at heart. Obviously, that's why she made an app. Um, but we'd love to learn a little bit more about her background on the Midwest. And so, Annie, welcome to the show. Hey, Jerry. Thanks so much for having me on. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you. Where in the world are you today? I am uh, located in Madison, Wisconsin. Well, I'm actually been... a little bit north of Madison. I, I live in the suburbs of Madison in, in a little town called DeForest. Oh, very cool. Um, how, how did you end up there? Um, I, well, I actually came to school here. Um, and when I uh, graduated from high school, uh, we lo relocated to Madison, Wisconsin. That is wonderful. Um, so, you know, tell us about Long Phrases. Um, it's an app. It's an app to teach the language, to maintain the language, and to give people practice to it. But suffice it to say, this is an audio platform, so we can't see the app or, I guess, keep us in your ear. Go to the App Store and download the app and, and follow along with us. But um, tell us about the app itself. What does it do? And, and what were you know your motivations and um, inspirations in wanting to start it? Sure. Well, my app is a, <clears throat> is a simple app to uh, teach users how to speak uh, conversational phrases and words and also learn by flashcards. And I built the app because I wanted to represent uh, my native dialect, which is Hmong Green, and also um, Hmong White, which are the two most popular uh, dialects spoken in the United States today by uh, Hmong users. And so I created the app out of us, well, back in 2011, in hopes of putting my app and putting Hmong uh, 
making Hmong resources available for users to learn. And um, back then there was a slogan from Apple that says, there's an app for that. And I searched for Hmong and it wasn't available. <laughs> they lied. <laughs> and uh, I also like downloaded a lot, a lot of uh, other language learning apps, which my language is very uh, underrepresented. And so I wanted to have a presence and have us uh, digitally on the map for uh, users to be able to access. That's wonderful. Um, for those of us who are not as familiar with the Hmong language, um, what is the difference between green and white and how do they get those designations? Sure. So back in the old country, um, there are many other dialects spoken. Um, but in the United States of the majority of the Hmong population that um, came as refugees over into the United States, primarily speak two, uh, which is Hmong green and Hmong white. Um, I would say that they our words are very common, except that uh, some words are just pronounced uh, uh, differently. So the intonations of some words are differently and some of the consonants and sounds are slightly different. I wouldn't I wouldn't have a comparison uh, because I don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese. So I don't know if it's similar to that or not, um, but it's almost kind of like a, an accent where maybe someone in the north of the United States versus someone from the south of the United States. You say the mm. same words, but you pronounce it slightly different. Gotcha. Wonderful. And you also uh, launched another app called uh, Yamaholic, which features Southeast Asian food recipes. Um, how did you come up with that? I mean, it's, I mean, I'm getting hungry just looking at the, the screenshots. Um, what was the inspiration there? Sure. So right around the same time when I was building uh, my Hmong Phrases app, and I also had two other apps in the app store before that called Hmong to English and English to Hmong, which were just direct word lookups. Um, it was, it didn't have no it didn't have any sound. But with uh, my Yamaholic app, I first started a YouTube channel back in 2009, 2010, just to showcase like Hmong food online. And as it started to gain momentum, I figured, oh, I should probably have an app uh, for this so, so that customers or users can be able to quickly access my recipes without having to watch an entire YouTube video. Um, oh, so, that's kind of, so that's kind of where it came about. My uh, passion of why I did it did it um, in YouTube was I, I just felt that social media was just really popular. It was a really popular platform. Um, and I didn't see a lot of people sharing uh, Hmong recipes out there. A lot of our cuisines are, you know, Southeast Asian. So we all we always have our own like Hmong twist to uh, Southeast Asian foods uh, popular in Thai, Lao, Vietnamese. Um, and also Chinese cooking. And so I just thought that it was something interesting. Um, I really just wanted to showcase, you know, who I was, what I like to share. And I and I really felt strong that if I shared something, hopefully others would be able to contribute and share their delicious recipes with me also. Annie, I mean, this is ridiculous because I think you just took things that you wanted to exist in the world. And then you're like, well, that doesn't exist. So let me build it. Um how did you learn the skills to code an app and create this? Not not everybody has the ability to take an idea that we have, something that we treasure or view as necessary in you know maintaining our food and our language is in your instance, um, and, and create something around it. How, how did you you know how did you figure it out? Well, for me, my my uh, professional background is was in web development, so I've been a web developer developer for about 20, oh, sorry. I've been a web developer for about 10 years. And then the last 10 years, I've been a mobile application developer. Um, I went back to school actually as an adult. Um, I didn't go back to school until I was 26. So um, there was a time when, you know, I graduated high school. I 
thought that I wanted to become a nurse. So I studied nursing at UW-Madison, but quickly found out that wasn't the right fit for me. So I dropped out of college and then I didn't go back until I was 26. Um, I was a mom, I was a wife. Uh, and then I just always knew that I loved computers, even though it was a really hard, I faced a lot of barriers into entry of going into IT because there wasn't a lot of people that looked like me, especially, you know, an Asian American woman in the field. Um, and, but I, I, I think that my passion was just so much stronger than my fear that I've always just been a self learner. I've self-taught myself HTML way long before I even attended college for, uh, taking it so that I could, you know, get a degree and get a, get, get a job and, um, start my uh, career that way. Um, so a lot of my technical skills came from that, uh, just experience, hands-on learning, um, and into like the social media, um, I was so I also happened to have the luxury of like working on my job to work on the social media team when, um, you know, Twitter and uh, Facebook was really popular and YouTube was very popular. And so like I learned a lot of social media strategies that I knew that like I could use to, you know, be able to promote myself and uh, my app and also uh, my YouTube channel on social media. And I've been loving it ever since. I'm a very social person. I use all different types of platforms. I think I'm on all of them, but that's just kind of where I've grown. That is incredible. Um, I want to come back to the app and, and not just talking about the app, but some of the the, the cool side stories of building community and, and connecting with people and, and all that good stuff. Um, but would love to learn your family history. Um, how did the Vang family... Uh, find their way to America and, and, you know, tell us a little bit about the earlier years of Annie's life. Sure. Um, I was born in a refugee camp and I came to the United States with my mom and my dad and my younger sister when I was two years old. Uh, we ended up in a small little town called Pella, Iowa. And um, my, my grandparents had lived there. And so we were sponsored by a uh, Christian family. And uh, that's kind of where I started um, or all my memories come from is from from stemming from uh, Pella, Iowa. Um, it was, uh, very challenging because, you know, my family members didn't speak English. And so I learned English by watching TV, watching Big Bird, Popeye, <laughs> Mr. Rogers. And so <laughs> those are my memories of learning English. Um, I also, I think as a young child, I was, uh, bullied a lot. We moved around a lot too. So after we lived in, um, Iowa, we moved to Wisconsin and I lived in, I grew up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, and, uh, there was a lot of bullying, um, just because I look different, people always told me that, you know, I spoke funny. Um, I had an English accent. I had a Hmong accent. And then um, also I was always told to like go back to my country. But being a first generation Hmong American and not having any memories of Thailand, I really didn't understand why that was. And it really caused a lot of confusion in me as a young child because I didn't have any friends that I just spent a lot of time in the library. And then when I found the love of computers in sixth grade, I that just magically struck me and a spark was just born. And like the fire and love of technology just only grew from then. I loved it so much that I, I even told a teacher once in high school that I really want to make games and really want to make things in the computer. I did not know what the word application meant at the time, but my teacher actually told me that I would not be successful because I was a, not a boy and not uh, a genius. And I, then I thought, okay, this is never in the books for me because, you know, she must know what she's talking about because she's an authority figure and she probably knows me better than I know myself. But and I, I felt really bad about it. And I really, it really did hurt my self-esteem and my dreams about what I could be. 
Um, and so I've always been trying to figure out who I was and my identity afterwards. But I think that the passion that I think I mentioned before, my passion like out, out, outshined the fear that I had of me that I would, you know, be rejected because I've been faced with rejection majority of my young life, not being accepted, not fitting in. And computers was just a place for me where I felt like I wasn't being judged. And uh, it was something that I knew that I was good at. And uh, no matter how much time I spent on it, I wanted more. I'm, I'm fascinated by the story. You know, we've had, um, you know, I, I've been really touched by having other friends who too were refugees and, and children of refugees here on the show. And, you know, it's an experience that um, I, I have not personally experienced and have only learned through other stories. What was that like? Because I, I, I've, some of the themes that I hear from other folks is just you're expected to just be grateful. Right. And that and that the racism comes with the package. Right. And that the discrimination is a part of the deal like that, that you have to suffer a little bit because uh, I'm putting in big air quotes with my fingers here. But like, you know, America rescued you. Right. And 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 how did that affect and, and did you feel any of that? Like, how did your parents help you process some of these unfortunate incidents of bullying and racism that you were just sharing about? And, and you know, how did that shape what you thought you could be in this country? What you, you know, I mean, now you're the person that uses her amazing tech skills to build apps to preserve the culture, but that's a big gap, right? Like from where you were, uh, you know, having come here at two years old, you know, I, I looked up Pella, Iowa, it's got 10,000 people now. So back then it must've been much fewer than 10,000, right? Like, and the closest city is Des Moines, which isn't really a big city. Like that environment of, you know, really sticking out because you're probably the only Lao family, right? Like, how, how does how did that factor, if it did at all, into your identity and what you thought you could be and what you eventually wanted to be? That totally affected me. I think because I didn't fit in and I didn't, I couldn't find. I was always searching for my place in this world. That I think that led me down the path of like denying who I really was, denying my roots, denying my culture, uh, afraid to eat food, my food at lunch. Uh, you know, at school. And so I think that deeply affected me very much to the point that like, I, I always tell people that I felt like the first, you know, 20 years of my life, I was trying to deny who I really was. And it wasn't until I became a mom that I really started to embrace like who I am and what I want for my child, my son. Um, I have one son. And, um, I think that really shaped me that like, you know, in my 20s, like not like for many years, I, I could only <clears throat> speak English, but I didn't know how to read or write it. Mm. And then in my 20s, I was, you know, as I was being a mom, I really felt that it was important for my son to, to learn Hmong and so that, that he didn't lose it or not know it growing up about who he was. And that's kind of when I start my soul searching uh, about like where I came from. Um, the, I didn't know a lot about like the war except for what my parents had told me. And also... I was always really afraid of authority figures growing up too, because the racism that I felt like growing up in Eau Claire, um, the injustices, there was really no protection. Like I couldn't really seek help from teachers or from principals. It was pretty much anything bad that happened to me. I would just have to swallow it because if I were to, um, to tell someone about it, I felt like nobody believed me. And so I just kind of pushed that feeling of, uh, not feeling wanted, not belonging, like really deep down inside. Um, and I think that did take a, a very big toll on on my self-confidence, especially my self-confidence um, and thinking that I, if someone told me something I couldn't do, I just felt really restricted. And also, 
even in like just culturally, but also in, you know, society, I have always felt that, you know, being a girl, um, you know, it was already being hard being a girl. It's also hard being first generation Asian American and all the, you know, trying to trying to appease uh, my parents and their expectations of what a girl is and what a girl does. And then also trying to fit in and 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 draw like energy from other girls my age. And I just felt like I was never on the same parallel as them. We just had very different like, you know, states of uh, where we are, were on our journey um, into, you know, adolescence and into adulthood. And I think that from that negativity and from the blockers and from everyone feeling rejected majority of my life, I just got to a point in my life when I was said, nope, enough is enough. I'm not, I'm not going to let you change uh, or tell me who I am or who you think I should be. Um, I wanted to take control of my own destiny. I wanted to go to school despite, you know, everyone telling me I wouldn't be successful. I just took mm. a chance on myself because I just felt that if I didn't do it now, um, when would I ever do it? And it was really scary, but I'm glad that I took the first step because that was the first step into like self-love, self-discovery, and just accepting that, you know, I'm here and I'm here to stay. You mentioned that for the first 20 of your 20 years of your life, um, you rejected the identity and, and you know, uh, later in life, you've embraced it. And you also spoke about living in places in America that didn't have uh, built in community. How did you find that? And what, how did you know that that's what you wanted? Because you didn't have it growing up. I mean, were there other families in Pella and in Eau Claire that you, your families, your, your parents resonated with that, you know, tell me about sort of that community aspect before you reached adulthood. Sure. So with my, with my family, personally, we always kind of lived close to where our relatives lived. So um, I've never lived in a place where I was just completely alone. Um, I've always either had like my cousins or my grandparents um, and all throughout, you know, the, where my adult, young adult life, you know, I've lived in Milwaukee, lived in Eau Claire, I've lived in Fresno, California, uh, I've lived in Providence, Rhode Island, I've lived in uh, the Twin Cities. And so we've always lived where there were pockets of other uh, Hmong families, mostly families, because we kind of live where our family members, we have close family members. And so for me, uh, living in Eau Claire was, there was a more community, but it wasn't as large as it, as it is today. Um, so in school, the only people that looked like me was myself and my sister and my cousins. Um, it wasn't until like I moved to California that there was like a huge, it was kind of like night and day where I went from being like the sore thumb that's out there. If I'm out there in present, you'll, you'll, you know, I'm the different one. But when I moved to California, it was like a totally different, different world where um, I just blended in with everybody else. Mm. And so that was like, I think the very first, like kind of like heartwarming feeling that I had that where I didn't feel like I was the outsider. I didn't feel that I was different. And uh, I, th I think that was you know, the first time in my life where I, I felt comfortable, like being, being me, being Asian. That's, uh, you know, um, one, I'm, I'm sorry you experienced so much hate and negativity in your, in your life. You know, I grew up in a place that was almost uh, too Korean in America, um, in, in a city called Fullerton down here in Southern California, where it was a different experience, right? I didn't, f there were moments where, like my first day of school in America was okay because like a third of the class was Korean. And so like, I would just figure out my stuff and I had a cousin in the class and, and all that. And, and I cannot imagine 
having gone through the path for your parents to end up where they did, and then to have no support system and to have that fear of even speaking up to authorities because they, you know, you weren't sure if they were going to back you or not. Right. And I think that's, that that's tough. Um, what, what made you choose? Um, I know you mentioned earlier sort of technology was sort of this emotion agnostic place where you felt like you could just learn a skill and, and thrive at it. And then you were first a, a website person. Um, how much of that part of your life in building websites and really helping organizations and people tell stories through a digital medium, which is in essence what a website is, was the seed or the spark to recognizing that you could use this tool and your skills to help bring other people together? Or were you just like, you know what, give me some money, I'll make you a pretty website and uh, you know we'll, we'll go to the next project. I think web, web, web 1.0 was very, very different, right? And if, if you, you know, um, are a little bit younger, you know, it was, it was very different. The, the, the functionalities were different. You know, we didn't have apps until the iPhone came out in 07 and the app marketplace didn't take place until a few years after that. How did you see your skills intersecting with uh, your desire and your uh, longing to find community and, and build community? I think that's that that passion and love for it just stemmed, stemmed from like, well, I think when I mentioned sixth grade, because, you know, before uh, before sixth grade, we, we didn't have a, a computer in the classroom. And so that was like a new, new thing that was just like super exciting to me. And um, I, I just love things that were different. I love technology. I loved what, you know, how you could use and use your mind to create and your creativity to create things inside of the computer. And I think that's kind of always been like the thing that interested me most um, what, long before we even had like cellular phones or internet. Like I lived through that era where we, we didn't, there was no internet, there was no cell phones. And as technology was just evolving, I felt like I grew up with it. Um, mm. And I felt that like, as uh, tech, new technology came, I was always like the first one in my family to like openly want to embrace that, you know, just because it's just something that I, I always felt like, you know, I couldn't control the other factors, social factors of how people treated me or how I felt um, in the presence of other people that made me feel less than. But with technology, I just always felt like, you know, I can get ahead with this. And I think that's just always been my, you know, forward thinking, like especially with the web. You know, I was I self-taught myself long before, um, you know, I, was, I went to college to learn it like formally in the classroom. But I noticed that, like, you know, without the education, people didn't really take me seriously. They didn't really think that I had the skills to do it or the paper or, or, you know, the degree. And so I really just had to push myself to 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 get like the bare minimum of recognition that, you know, hey, I'm somebody that I could use my skills to um, better my life and better, you know, my community. And with the apps, I mean, I think when the iPhone came out, I was super excited. I was like, this is like really cool. And especially when um, Apple announced that, you know, developers could actually uh, put their build apps and put it in their app store. To me, that that was the very first time in my life I felt like, hey, I could actually do this individually. I don't have to work for a large company in order to produce uh, an application out there in the world. I could do this uh, myself and see where this this takes me. And um I've always been like kind of like a choose your own adventure girl. Those are my favorite books when I was a kid. Um, uh, just so you could, you know, you're presented with multiple options and you make the best option that that's right for you. And then it leads to, you know, a different path, a different adventure. And I think that's one of the things that I love the most about this is that the journey, it never ends. You're always 
moving forward, um, meeting new friends, meeting new challenges, overcoming obstacles. Sometimes, you know, the road is never a straight path. And especially for me, I felt like there was no real path for me. Like I didn't have direction in my life. And it was really difficult to kind of start to, you know, walk down a path where there is no road and, you know, you're there um, just walking forward because there's no other way to go. I can't go backwards. How did you maintain your language and the cultural knowledge that you are now sharing through your apps? I spoke it, um, my parents spoke it to me growing up, but um, I think because I tried to speak English so much that I, I really didn't speak it very well as an adolescent. When I got married, I had to speak it more fluently. And because I, I am a different dialect than my husband, I had to learn uh, his dialect in order to communicate with his family. And also in the forms of respect, when I marry into his family, I had to speak his dialect and not mine. And so that was very, mm. that was very challenging wow. for me. Yeah, it's very challenging for me. Um, you know, and then also I couldn't read or write Hmong growing up because I didn't have, there wasn't very many resources, resources there weren't many books. And it wasn't like, because we're such an oral language, if your parents didn't teach it to you or you had it firsthand, you wouldn't know how to read or write it or how to sound out, you know, words. And so when I was in college, I started, well, when I had a computer, I started making an Excel spreadsheet of all different kinds of words. Um, and the English word, the Hmong word, the Hmong white word, the Hmong green word, and just keeping it like a, a catalog of words so that I could practice you know, practice the sound, practice the writing. And over time, um, it just evolved. And I just took my catalog, my my little Excel spreadsheet and uh, converted it over into a JSON and um, JSON file, tech stuff, <laughs> uh, into a, a tech file, tech file that I could just um, uh, use to uh, seed that my application. And I think mm. from there, I just kept growing on it and, and all the audio and all the other um, images um, in my app, like I created those. Um, so all the sounds I, I digitally record and then edit and then um, put them on the app store. So it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a long journey, uh, but it's been very rewarding because I'm very passionate about it. That's fascinating. I mean, I, I think when we think about in today's terms, right, like if we don't know something, it's like Google it, right? And and even though you and I didn't grow up with that, like that's our go-to. And, you know, so now it's like the, the concept of education is like you don't have to memorize everything. You just have to know where to find it in, in the most efficient and effective form. Um, we met through an event that our wonderful friends at Apple uh, hosted, as I mentioned earlier, where uh, you were one of three Asian American uh, app developers that were using the leverage and the power of the Apple App Store to, um, you know, share culture and, and food. How did you, where, where was the idea f- to to spark it? Because I remember when you uh, were speaking at the event, there was a great concern about the possibility that the language would get lost within a generation or two. That if we don't give people the resources to teach it um, because of assimilation, because of the way that we forget distant from culture, what have you, uh, particularly in the context of how the people have had to move and to, and to, you know, basically be ousted from the homeland. Right. And, and so tell us about that and, and how this is much bigger than creating an app and, you know, hoping other people download it. Um, what is part of the motivation 
or the legacy piece or the mission piece of both Hmong phrases and Yamaholic? I can speak that I'm actually one of those people that I was on the verge of not being able to speak Hmong growing up um, because I wasn't I wasn't using it on a daily basis. My primary language of choice was English. And so I'm a testament that that was me, first generation uh, Hmong American. I couldn't really speak it as a child. I could answer simple things to my parents, but on a regular basis, I wasn't I wasn't speaking it. And I find that a lot of first generation uh, Amer- uh, first generation among Americans like myself, we all kind of suffered the same path unless you were from a family that was very traditional and only allowed you to speak Hmong at home. You primarily were speaking English all the time uh, to your parents and to the elders. I felt that it was really important because also um, because of my my native dialect, I don't see a lot of people out there or a lot of resources out there um, teaching my dialect. And so I've seen a lot of other Hmong Americans who are either second or third generation that their native dialect is green Hmong, but then the resources are available in only white Hmong. So they learn white Hmong and not are not able to speak their own native dialect to their family. And I felt that it was really important to have both so that, you know, I could still maintain it for future generations if they would like to learn it or be able to communicate with uh, the elders or their grandparents or aunties and uncles in their family. And to me, that was just really important because I felt that language was just like very the the most basic thing that you could have to connect to someone, um, to be able to speak to them, to be able to like talk to heart to heart. And I wanted to preserve that and in a, in a digital format because I felt that uh, with books, I think books are phenomenal and they're excellent. However, the ability to sound out the sounds, um, you can't get that from a book. And I know you can get it from YouTube and watching videos, but sometimes you have to scrub longer to get to a certain term or phrase that you you would like to learn. And I felt like the app was probably the easiest thing um, that you could just, you know, quickly search and have it filtered and, you know, pick the word and, and play the sound. And with the de- with the physical device of an, of an iPhone, you could practice in the comfort of your own home without someone judging you or, or, or um, uh, ridiculing you for mispronouncing a word. I've gotten a lot of good feedback from the app users that, you know, they practice in their own privacy and uh, surprise a lot of their family, family and friends uh, by speaking Hmong. They're like, oh, you speak Hmong too. So that's, that's kind of been really awesome feedback that I've gotten. But yeah, I think that with uh, technology, it's great. And, um, I hope that more people continue to, I hope that I can inspire other other Hmong developers or emerging developers uh, to build more tools for our uh, community space. And I think that it would be extremely valuable. One feedback that I also got from overseas that some users in, you know, in Thailand and Laos is that they, they know how to speak Hmong, but they cannot speak English. And so they've asked if I could just incorporate an English sound with the Hmong sound so that mm. as they tap on it, they can learn English, learn learn how to pronounce and practice on their speech using the English part. And I said, yeah, that sounds like a great feature. I'm going to add it to my features list and hopefully have it available for just even, even like the second wave of um, or third wave of Hmong immigrants to the United States where their Hmong is fluent, but their English is not quite as fluent, but they are they're still first generation Americans, but, you know, we've arrived at different times in our life um, to America. And they've asked me to to have that feature available so that they can practice their English. And I understand that because when I was little, a little kid trying to try to say the word ambulance. Nope, not a chance. I could not pronounce that for the life of me. <laughs> um, 
What were your parents' reaction to this? Because I, I imagine they have had their own struggles and our, our parents, to, to generalize, don't speak as much about their pain and their you know challenges, but they've seen you, they've seen you grow up in rural areas and then um, the reconnection to culture and language. Did you talk to them about it through the process or was it one day I was like, hey, give me your phone, let me download something for you? Uh, my parents have actually been with me since the beginning of my journey. So um, when I pitched to them the idea that you know I had it as a school project and I wanted to convert it over to audio, my mom and my dad has helped me along the way. You know, they helped me with like proofreading, checking that my sounds intonations are accurate, especially because I'm doing both dialects. And so they've uh, I've downloaded it on the phone so that if my mom finds things that are not accurate, she like immediately tells me so that I can <laughs> fix them. Um, so they've been really proud of me. Um, I think that my dad, especially, and my mom, because, you know, girls in our culture, I, I, I hate to say this, but like, I think that a lot of the, our parents, because they're, you know, they still came over from the old world with the mentality that, you know, they really invested in their boys and not as much in their girls. And so my parents have always felt like, you know, because I was a girl that, you know, I would anything or any education that I had would benefit my, you know, my new family, my new husband's side of the family instead of mm-hmm. like benefiting my my parents. But my mom would have always encouraged me that no matter what, you know, if, even, if, even if I'm a girl, that, you know, education is important and that um, I can create anything that I want to. And I think making them proud has really has really lifted me um, just because of all the insecurities that I had as, you know, being being a girl, like being not as seen as a boy or not as valued as a boy in my culture. I see that changing in, you know, modern day. And I'm really fortunate that, you know, I'm able to get that chance here in um, the United States because my mom, uh, her generation, they didn't they did not have that. How do you reconcile that as as a mother, as somebody who who lives here and certainly Plenty of conversations here in America talking about, you know, women's rights and our, you know, equal access and equal opportunity, which, you know, again, I, I think for, for me, it's been a balance and um, the Korean culture is patriarchal uh, as well. Um, at, you know, not, not super hardcore, but it still is. Um, and having to sort of unlearn sort of, you know, um, gender roles and expectations of men do this, women don't versus, you know, men don't do that. And, you know, and I think it's, Having to um, unlearn some of that stuff while at the same time respecting and honoring the culture, how has that process been for you? Um, I think I am doing a lot of what you're saying too, like trying to unlearn some of the things that have been ingrained in me since childhood about what girls can do, what boys can do, um, kind of like our, our you know unique gender roles. I think of as I have evolved, I've worn so many different hats and, you know, met other different people. And I've just really learned to embrace that. Like, I, I, I do find myself shifting in my gender roles, depending on my environment, depending on the job, depending on uh, the community and the space that I'm in. Um, so I, it, it's, it's a tough balancing act to, to do that. In terms of like my career, though, I, I feel that I am still in the space where I'm still constantly trying to fight for my seat at the table to make myself seen, to make myself heard. And so that still is a is a constant battle, but it's something that I've just become so used to that it 
it's, I don't really think of it. It's just kind of unconscious and I just move forward and I just try to fit in wherever I can fit, my, fit myself into that space. Um, but I think that for someone who is younger, that's still struggling with their identity and trying to find their place in this world, it is a very hard way. It's very hard to navigate, um, navigate the culture, navigate, you know, the, the social, um, community, um, your professional career. I think it's just, it's just at the end of the day, how you, how you portray yourself and how you feel about yourself really depends on, you know, how you, um, not necessarily react, but how you observe everything and try to make the best of it in a way that you're proud of and, and, and doing things that you know, that would make you and make others happy. But I, I think I still suffer from the uh, trying to always uh, appease and trying to always like be a people pleaser. That's always been like the hardest thing for me, um, saying no. <laughs> um, what's the coolest thing that's happened to you from starting uh, the app? I think the coolest thing has happened for me is being accepted into Apple's entrepreneur camp because my app uh, has been around for about, you know, uh, it had been around for like 10 years, 11 years. And until I got accepted to Apple's e-camp, the only people that ever heard about me was, you know, through my social medias and through friends and family. Um, when I went to Apple eCamp, I got a lot of help and firsthand, you know, sessions with Apple engineers and uh, in the business to help me like upgrade my app so that it could be more usable, more accessible to users. And after that experience and meeting all the other uh, awesome female entrepreneurs, just really like lifting my myself and the purpose of why I made the app just even became more relevant to me because I think others helped me see that I was doing something that nobody else in the world was doing, uh, which was trying to document and try to uh, create a space for, for Hmong, Hmong and native and non-native speakers to learn Hmong and learn my language, to have it available out there and to catalog it and have it in a digital space where, you know, they can get it from anywhere. And I think that's just been so awesome especially, you know, being recognized by, you know, and having the opportunities to speak at events and to tell my story, like telling my story. I think that's just been the best experience for me, um, just to have other people learn about my journey and learn about who I am and who I represent. And that's, that's always been like my heart. Like it always tugs on my heartstring when everyone asks me, can, would you like to speak about your app? And I said, yes, because I, I want you to know, I want to spread more Hmong awareness and I want to spread who I am and share my story to help inspire other uh, others to build apps or if not building apps, just to continue to find courage um, and follow their dreams. And I think the one of the coolest lessons um, is the longevity piece. Right. Because I think it's, you know, I, you didn't chase clout with the app. You didn't chase unicorn status with an app. Right. Like it was something that you wish you had. So you just built it and it kept getting better and better. Um, how has this helped you build community and find other people in the community, particularly through the pandemic where meeting virtually was the norm? And, you know, um, obviously when, you know, large groups of uh, refugees are brought to a country, they're spread out based on, you know, who can take them and, and where the resources are. H has there been a fact part of this journey where there's almost a full circle moment of connecting with people who have similar experiences as you? 
Yes, definitely. Um, I want to share a quote that my teacher once told me, like back when I was working on my class project, but he said, you know, if you want to build something, uh, build something, even if nobody ever paid for it or downloaded it from the app store, you would be proud that you made it and that you you did it because it was a passion of yours. And I think that's kind of what my philosophy has been with my app is that even if like, you know, for, for 10 years I had in the app store, I didn't get a lot of downloads, but I just kept adding to it, kept building to it, kept, kept working at it silently over the years. And so like, just by doing that, you know, I've grown tremendously as a developer and also um, as an entrepreneur and um, being able to just have it there when I meet other other people and when they tell me, hey, you're Annie, I know you built the app, I have your app. Like that is just really, really heartwarming to me. It's very special to me because, you know, um, I built something that they have on their phone and it's something that they chose to download and they chose to give me, give me 99 cents. And so it's really hard to earn 99 cents. So I appreciate that. (laughs) I appreciate that so, so much um, because it it means a lot to me that, you know, it's, it's being used um, for, it's being used for, you know, them to, to learn the language or also to just to share it with others, just to, just to have like that. I want to say Hmong pride, but yes, Hmong pride that they have on their phone. Um, so yeah, in going like full circle, like from where I started and where I am right now, um, I still feel like my journey is still growing. I'm still going, I'm still moving forward. I'm still, you know, all the great ideas that I get from, uh, the app users giving me feedback about improvements, things that they would like to see. Like, I never thought that I would get that from anyone. I actually, you know, thought that I was building this kind of in a silo and I was just all alone in this journey, but I'm not, I'm think I feel like I'm taking others with me on this journey and giving me feedback and telling me how, you know, constructive criticism, good things, bad things about the app that can only make it better. So I, I feel like it's, it's, it, there's more people on board coming with me on this journey and, and it feels amazing. That's awesome. What do you want to come out of all this? What is other than more people learning the language and maintaining it? And then be vain as you'd like. Like, you know, what is what what is sort of like, oh my goodness, if this happened, this would make me so happy. And even if it's, you know, something silly or, or, or vain. I I would love to see like every I know the the North Star like wish list is like, yeah, I would like to have like a lot uh this device on, you know, my app on everyone's device that, you know, was a Hmong, you know, speaker uh or non-native Hmong speaker, um, that to have it available. That's why I'm working really hard to um, also try to bring it over to Android because although I have it for iOS, a lot of my Android user friends tell me, I would really love to use your app, but it's not available on Android. And so that's a challenge that I've taken upon myself to uh, be able to port my code over into Kotlin so that I could build on it in Android Studio and publish it in the Google Play Store. So it's actually giving me a lot of motivation to have it like available on Android and iOS devices. And I think if I could get there, I, I would feel like, oh, okay, now I'm just not only one platform, but on all platforms. And I think that's, that's a great skill for me to have too, to, as a mobile developer, to not just be on one platform, but be on both. But my heart still is on the iOS platform because that's where I've been the last 11 years. Uh, but that's something that, that's a space that I'm going in. I would love to be on both. I, I think it's incredible. Um, thank you for, for doing this. It is obviously not a, a culture or language that I grew up with or familiar with, but um, I, I think maintaining um our stories through language. There are certain things that can be said in one language that we can't possibly say in another. 
the ability to reconnect with our elders in our lives and to um, build that healthy sense of pride in our children, uh, that this is who we are and, and language is is a critical part of it. So I, I think it's super cool. As we wrap here, Annie, um, you know, obviously our show is called Dears Americans. It's in the form of a letter, a love letter to us and from us to share advice, motivation, inspiration, just words uh, that we maybe wish we had earlier in our lives. And so maybe you can frame it in the form of a letter to your kids or to a younger version of Annie or or somebody who is just looking to find a place in this country where they feel like they belong. Help us close out the show and complete the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, I want you to understand that you are beautiful, you're special, and you can be anyone you want to be. I myself am still a work in progress, and I hope that we can continue to grow our community by supporting and uplifting each other and celebrating our successes, no matter how big or small it is, that we continue to uh, love our neighbors and share joy, share food, share language, and also uh, be well and be happy. Incredible. Um, Mong phrases, all together, no spaces. Uh, Yamaholic, go download it on the App Store, leave a review, spend that 99 cents, even though Apple takes a chunk and it all doesn't go to Annie. Um, are there ways, Annie, that we can support you outside of downloading the app? Sure. You can also go to my YouTube channel. Uh, it's Just search for me, uh, Mong Food, one word, and uh, subscribe to my channel. That'd be great. And I'm also on TikTok. If you're a TikToker, um, I'm learning to be more active in that space, too. I love TikTok, by the way. Wonderful. Amazing. Uh, thank you again for sharing your story with us and uh, you know, to the team at Apple and to... Um, Kathy for connecting us. Uh, thank you so much and continue the work that is challenging and tough, but uh, important and dare I say necessary uh, to make sure that we maintain our identity pride in the healthiest of ways of who we are from where we come and where we want to go as a people. So Annie, thanks so much. Best of luck, I would say, but you've been doing it for a decade and I hope that more people find it. I hope that more people uh, find value in it and uh, wishing you the best in the growth of your family and your business. Thanks so much, Annie. Thank you so much. Thanks again so much to Annie for sharing her story with us. Go on the App Store, on the Apple App Store, go to Mong Phrases, and you can download her app as well. And a big thanks again to our friends at Apple, particularly Kathy Park, for connecting us. You can find out all about Annie at the links in the show notes. And you can learn all about us at DearAsianAmericans.com if you want to listen to older episodes. Or if you want to check us out on the Instagrams, it is at DearAsianAmericans. Again, we have a brand new logo. We launched a new website or a new newsletter, rather. Uh, you can go to those things at bit.ly slash DA newsletter and bit.ly slash DAA shop. Most of the proceeds will actually go uh, to our interns who help make this possible. And uh, really, really excited for that. So, uh, big thanks again to Ian and to Tammy for making this possible. On a personal note, if you're listening this far, really excited to launch a brand new community and a business around bringing Asian creators together. And so if you want to support us in that venture, you can go to at alwaysbecreating.xyz. That's at alwaysbecreating.xyz on the Instagram. And we're building that together with my friend Justin Wen, a former podcast guest and founder of Declassified Media. 
You can learn all about me and the work that I do outside of this podcast at jerrywan.com or find me on LinkedIn. Just search Jerry Wan. That's J-E-R-R-Y-W-O-N. Thanks again to Annie for joining us in the show. Hope you had a great time listening to us here on episode 163 of The Years in Americans. And as we always do, we wish you health, happiness, and safety. I'm your host, Jerry Wan, and see you next time.